forward to talking about our Lord Jesus and seeing him maybe today in ways that we've uh, not had the privilege of doing before and especially being what me oh okay um so let's look at john chapter 12 together um when you look at this chapter it's it's so beautiful and it's very unusual because there's no there are no um miracles in this chapter And there are no long sermons, no long discourses. So what is in this chapter? What makes this chapter kind of um, unique? Or what gives this chapter its, uh, its importance? And it's a chapter that is very, very unusual in, in the Bible because it is packed full of emotion. And since I'm not an emotional person, it was very hard. <laughs> it's very hard for me to see the emotion. Um, actually, it was such a comfort because you see in this chapter the range of every human passion and emotion. And they're all laid out for us to examine and to see them in kind of the right light of what human emotion where it's good and where it's evil and where it works and where it doesn't. So in this chapter, we see this tapestry of human and divine emotions and expressions and passions. Passion isn't a negative word. Passion is very positive. We're to be very passionate about the very things that God himself is passionate about. And we see Jesus in this chapter showing great passion and emotion heightened passion and emotion and for us we can learn from the passions that are talked about in this chapter we see fears and devotion and love and envy and friendship and agony just to name a few and all of these are woven together into this beautiful tapestry of the evening and the first few hours before Jesus actually enters into what we call the week of passion and um, so it's, it's a wonderful study on human emotion. And a very interesting thing also about this chapter to me is that it's Jesus's human emotions that we are exposed to. We see in many ways underneath or beyond or that that part of Jesus' humanity that struggles with the same things we struggle with, his, his fear and his anger and his, his, um, his um, the pain that he's suffering in these verses. So we begin in this chapter with one of my favorite things, which is a dinner party. And... Um, it's thrown for Jesus uh, in his honor. It's also to celebrate Lazarus. And the fever pitch of, of Jesus' popularity and the Pharisees' hatred and resentment and envy and fear of Jesus is heightened at this point because of the resurrection of Lazarus. He has done so many wonderful things, um, miracles that people have talked about, the word has spread that um, 
Only, um, only the Messiah, only someone from God could do the things that he has been doing. So there are all these people that are believing and beginning to believe that this could be the coming Messiah or the Messiah that was promised. And then when he does this final amazing thing, which is actually raising a man from the dead, it just, you know, is, is bigger than winning the Super Bowl in terms of miracles. His fame goes crazy with the, with the spread of what he was able to do in raising Lazarus. So he has this huge crowd of people. Everybody's curious. They're coming to Jerusalem for the Passover. And it's just, it's ripe with emotion and ripe with um, the attention being focused on Jesus. And it's also the ripe occasion for the Pharisees to decide if we don't do something about Jesus now, we will lose the battle. He is winning. We are losing. We must do something right now to stop this popularity and to stop the people um, following Jesus. So it's so sweet that his best friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, who he has spent so much time with, who he's loved dearly, they would be considered some of his closest friends. They have him come to Bethany and in this quiet evening celebrate Jesus and they celebrate um, Lazarus. And um, we see this party being given at the home of Simon. He was a single man. So we think that he probably asked Martha to cater the event because that's her gift because we were first introduced to Martha in Luke chapter 10 and we see there she's only preparing a meal for four people her brother her sister Jesus and she is the Bible says distracted and in um, just a twit over the fact that Mary's not helping her and she's being left to do all the preparation for the four of them and she wants Jesus to do something about that and um, I used to think it would be so embarrassing to be Martha because he he um, rebukes her and um, points out the difference in her fretting and in Mary's worship and adoration so I loved this um, this quote here that I have on the first page uh, from Morris. This word, um, I can't say I'm there Greek, it's serving and service. Um, Morgan makes the point that in the Luke passage where she served a meal for four people and Martha was distracted, here she's probably got a huge crowd, 17 at the least, but it could have been half the town coming to celebrate Jesus and Lazarus. Um, but there's not a word here about her being distracted. Martha has learned something on that sad, dark day when Jesus spoke to her at the beginning. Her service had not ceased, however, but some secret had been learned which kept her from distraction. And that secret that she learned was worship. So I, uh, I kind of put it this way, that the priorities of her heart had shifted and she had learned to, rather than whistle while you work, she had learned to worship while she worked. And she now was able to 
host this event for Jesus and do it at the same time that she was admiring him, adoring him, worshiping him. So that's the first passion we see that Mary's, uh, Martha's passionate privilege she saw in serving Christ and his friends. The second passion we see is Mary's, um, can I walk with this? I took an antihistamine last night, so don't ever do that before you're going to talk because it just, nothing, <laughs> nothing works, right? Um, Mary, um, in this account, is, has lost all reserve, and she is completely throwing herself in, in total abandonment in worship of her Lord. There was never a time in Jesus' whole ministry that he had a more glorious evening with people, the people he loved. And it was a very unusual evening. Mary, one of the commentators said, was probably Jesus' best listener. And she had started to connect the dots and she had started embracing the fact that Jesus came to die and it was made very real to her when her brother died and she they called for Jesus and Jesus makes the parallel to Lazarus death and his resurrection to his own death and resurrection and why other people weren't understanding it, it's, they weren't understanding it because they couldn't, they, what good would a dead Messiah be to them, right? So they were accepting Jesus as the Messiah, and when he would talk of his death, they wouldn't hear of it. It didn't make any sense to them. In some way, the seeds of faith and understanding that Jesus came to die began to take root in Mary's heart. And she had an intuition that this night was going to be the last night that she spent with Jesus. There was something in her heart that, that came out in this expression of breaking this ointment on Jesus in a preparation for his burial that indicated that she realized my time is is limited. We're not going to have him forever. She did exactly what Jesus is asking everybody else to do, was to walk in the light while the light is there, to believe in him while he's with them. Don't wait. Don't put this off. And so she does this unheard of thing which is not, it's not so much the money that's involved, although that in and of itself was extravagant and, and completely um, unusual that you would take this 20-something thousand dollar bottle in our day of oil that was reserved for all kinds of special occasions, Many times it was used for festivals, a wedding, any time you wanted to show the people around you in your community that something wonderful was happening in your life, 
um, they would use these ointments and oils and then they were also used for burial to, to commemorate and celebrate the person's life. So at a dinner party to break out this $25,000 bottle of oil was, was really unheard of. But at that moment, Mary's heart was so moved to embrace Jesus' death and to identify with his death and to take his death onto her and, and have this tangible that you could see, smell, feel, experience, to experience his death. And that's what we're all asked to do. We're all asked to identify with and experience and feel and taste and receive the death of Christ and what it means for each of us. She had no restraint. So not only was it this lavish money spent on Jesus and this lavish expression of devotion and acceptance, but it was done in such an undignified manner. She lost all of the ladylikeness that they had to have to let her hair down in public and especially in the presence of men was absolutely unheard of and very undignifying and even shameful. And she was willing to put herself, whether it, whether it was something she contemplated beforehand or, or whether the oil just spilled everywhere and her hair was the first thing she thought of that was, you know, kind of like a mop and she's, she's taking this long hair and just making the situation so intimate with, without it being inappropriate. But it's that losing of herself and losing of her position, losing of her pride, and in abandonment, worshiping and honoring her Lord and Savior and receiving his death. So uh, up against that is the opposite passion, which is Judas's pettiness and his anger. This isn't him just saying, Oh, well, you know, it would have been a better idea if we had used that. He was so angry, so jealous, so mad that this was wasted. Can you believe the difference in, in Mary's worship and Judah seeing it as wasted? Gosh, those two things couldn't be farther apart that she's worshiping and he sees it as wasted. And so when Jesus rebukes Judas and says, leave her alone, she is identifying with my death. She is preparing me for my death. She is anointing me as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I'm receiving from her all that is due to me. You don't get it, but I'm receiving all that is due Leave her alone. Judas snapped. And at that point, his greed and his heart became so hard that they just lost this extravagant amount of money that could have been put in their purse that he conveniently could have used and benefited from. 
I think that started in him this this hatred and this grip that greed had on his heart that set him up to go right into town and sell Jesus. It was like, I will get the money. Um, and Jesus' passionate defense of Mary in front of everybody else. Then this passion of pure love given and received by Jesus to Mary and Mary to Jesus. When love comes down from heaven, which she had seen in the work and life and friendship and majesty of Jesus, she had seen the love come down from heaven and she received it with gratitude. And this is like a circle of love that has to be complete. I love this quote. Heaven had spoken, Lazarus, come out. Earth answered, and the sweet fragrance of its deed was waffled back to heaven. Thus love answered love, and the circle was completed. Woe to the man or woman who fails to complete the circle. Love has come down in the work of Jesus Christ. Love has come down in the cross. And woe to the person that doesn't complete the circle and live in gratitude and acceptance of the cross. So now we have another set of passions. It's a parade, and there are no parades that are just like, oh, that's a parade. Parades are designed to be full of passion, full of excitement, full of all kind of, of, um, of whatever happens at a parade. They're they are made for emotion, for emotion. So, see, so Jesus says, okay, let's let this happen. He is resolved to begin the work of redemption. He, he at any moment could have um, had a parade or stopped a parade. He's been orchestrating every detail of his life several times when people would come what does the bible say he said it's not my time and he would just walk right through the crowds now he is saying let's let this let's let the party start let's let the parade start i will come in and let everyone announce my arrival as the king of kings let's do this let's roll let's just let it happen but it'll be on my terms. I'm not going to be coming in on a war horse. I'm going to be coming in on a donkey. And that was very specific, not only to fulfill the Zechariah 9 passage that said he'll, be com- he'll come in as one riding on a donkey, but the significance is what that donkey symbolized. And it's hard for us to understand. I remember I used to think, he can make anything. I mean, couldn't he have done better than a donkey to ride? To ride on. Um, but it it was a symbol of peace. So instead of coming in on a war horse, he's being very careful to say, I'm king of kings, lord of lords, but I'm the prince of peace. So I kind of put it like this. You know, in some countries, when they have big parades, it starts with, with the armies and then the tanks and it's just you know flexing their muscles and everybody's like "Ooh, we've got all these tanks yay look at us we're so strong and wonderful so that's 
in a lot of the world, the way uh, rulers show their power and their strength is by these military parades. Whereas in America, we've always had the luxury and symbolism of our presidents riding in convertibles. And the beautiful picture, I've, this, is, this gives me chills every time I see it because it's, it's designed purposely to show the world we are a country of peace. When the president walks from the White House to the Capitol to be inaugurated, and it gives me chills to think about it, and it's, it's, this, it's this symbol of we, I'm doing a great job of it, but we want to represent peace, that we have the luxury of our president walking from his house to the Capitol. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He is saying, of course, he's about to go to war and fight the enemy of all enemies, and he is about to defeat Satan. This is not a poor little donkey ride. This is a conquering king showing at the beginning the result of the conquer. He's showing from the beginning I'm coming as the Prince of Peace to reconcile God and man and put the enemy under my feet so that we will reign in peace forever. So he's like the end of the story before the actual battle takes place. The people are passionate. They're screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save us, save us now. The people want the Messiah. They want him to be their savior. So they're in all, they're in this heightened emotional state. And opposed to their passion of, of Hosanna, please save us. You're the Messiah. You're the promised one. The Pharisees have an equal amount of passion but theirs is in hatred, envy, and jealousy. And they begin to look like the fools that they really are. They see this parade happening. They hear the people shouting, Hosanna. They are just like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Can't you make them be quiet? They say to some of the disciples, can't you make these people stop saying Hosanna? Can't you make them stop waving their branches and worshiping him? And then the... Um, then they say to each other, the whole world's following him. Like we've lost, the whole world's following it. And the passion of the hyperbole is really um, actually gets humorous in that um, they're, they're saying the whole world's following him is literally equivalent to a teenager saying, well, why can't I do it? Everybody's doing it. Well, everybody's not doing it, first of all. And Proportionately, this is actually a pretty puny parade when you think about the whole world, when you think about all of Jerusalem. This is a little band of people. It was significant, but it was a small band of people that were coming to follow Jesus and were hearing him. So the whole world... It's a, it's a pretty puny little parade that's happening, and they're just puffed up men that, don't, that can't take any threat at all. And um, so Jesus, um, I love this, his, um, his passion for his name 
when he hears them say, can't you make them shut up? Can't you make them be quiet? Um, He says, don't you understand that if the people were quiet, the rocks would shout my name. And this is this little puny parade. I, I, I think of it in terms of Jesus allowing this to happen, starting this parade because he knows that it's the start of the demonstration that will lead to his death. He knows that he's just stirring the pot, so to speak, is what this parade is. Because um, I've been to a small town parade, and, you know, the people there are excited about it, but it's really, when you're looking at a small town parade, it's a small town parade. And this is all a very small town parade compared to when Jesus comes back. And... The whole world says he was, he was, he is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And there will be, those that don't know him will be asking for the very mountains to swallow them up. That's the parade. That is who Jesus really is. And he's, um, he's, um, I don't know. He, it's, it's, it's just, um, it's amazing the humility that Jesus was willing to suffer on our account. And the hyper, and they're um, exaggerating. Every, you know, the whole world's come to follow him. Actually, ends up being prophetic in that the very next verse, the very next section, um, tells us that the Greeks then did come. And ask, where can we find Jesus or can we see Jesus? May we have an audience with Jesus. And at that moment, Jesus realizes the hour has come. The significance of that, if you'll look, um, page four at the top. Jesus' passion for the hour, the time of fulfillment of God's plan to rescue the world. He lays down his life to save the world. Jesus expresses his passion for this moment in history where he is no longer just the Messiah of, the, of Judaism, but the Savior of the world. This is where it was broken. This is where in the, in the height of the rejection of his people, he came to his people and his people refused him, did not believe him. At the height of their hatred and their plot to kill him, you have the world coming, seeking him. And Jesus knew the sincerity of their heart, and he knew they were coming, seeking sincerely the Savior. And at that time in history, the hour has come. He's been saying, the hour is not yet. The hour is not yet. The hour had come. And he has a passion for the hour, a passion to save the world. And then when um, he recognizes the importance of this hour, that now the time has come for him to set his sight on the cross, he is then suddenly overwhelmed with human fear, I get this from my daddy. I'm sorry. He was great. He cried all the time, and he was embarrassed, and I'm embarrassed. But um, the nut doesn't fall far from the tree. 
um, Jesus' passionate human fear and dread of the coming of the cross. Not only the physical agony that he is dreading, but the agony of separation from his Father and receiving the judgment of the world. He was abhorring it at the same time he was adoring his Father. He was suffering, and at the same time, he was submissive. And um, I don't know of anything that I contemplate that's more comforting than these prayers of Jesus when he is facing an agony that we can't even imagine. This is an agony of infinite proportion. This is an agony of the, of the Godhead from all eternity that we, that we have no way to comprehend. And when he goes to the same Father that ordained this agony and submits to that same Father and adores and worships that same Father, that is such an example for us and ex- exactly what we have to do when we're confused, when we're overwhelmed, when we're hurting, when we're fearful, when our souls are in the deepest anguish. We don't have anywhere else to go either. This is the perfect, perfect big brother showing us and doing it first for us you have nowhere else to go. You have to go right as I've heard Darwin say it before. You have to walk. You have to entrust yourself to to be on the conveyor belt going full speed into the chainsaw of God's sovereignty. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. I cannot imagine. I, I, humanly speaking, I cannot endure what I'm facing. But... That is the only place I can go is to my Father and worship Him and bow down before Him and submit myself to His will. And praise be to God, He did. It's our salvation. Um, Then Jesus' passionate hatred for sin and Satan, that He came to destroy the evil one. He came to crush him. He came to break the power of sin and its dominion and and its power over us. A passion, um, then I think I'm on page five. Um, uh, At the top, we have in this passage also two beautiful pictures of what it looks like to have a misplaced passion and what it looks like to have a passion for Christ. We see the the Pharisees that wanted to believe in Jesus. They wanted to believe he was the Messiah, but then because of their, they were afraid they would lose their position, lose their place in the synagogue, they recoiled away from Jesus. This is an awesome and great quote from um, um, Matthew Henry, the top of page 5. See here the fatal consequences of an inordinate love of life. This is a misplaced passion when you love yourself. Many a man hugs himself to death. Don't you love that? And loses his life by overloving it. 
He that so loves his animal life as to indulge his appetite and make provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof shall thereby shorten his days, shall lose the life he is so fond of, and another infinitely better. So this is the misplaced passion, to hug yourself to death. We can use that with our children, can't we? I think that's something that they can understand and something I can remind myself, please don't let me hug myself to death. The man who loves his own life will destroy it. But we're to have a passion for Christ, a dying to ourselves that we may live for Christ. And we have the picture in this passage of what that life looks like. It looks like a grain that is placed in the soil and dies so that it can bear fruit. Jesus is our first example of that. He is the first fruit of that. He is the one that showed us how to do that. Um, People whose priorities are right have such an attitude of love for the things of God that all interest in the affairs of this life appear by comparison as hatred. Such people will keep their life for eternal life unto the life of the age to come. Then at the very end of this passage, we have Jesus' passionate cry. These are the last public words that he's going to speak. The rest of the time, he's in private conversations. So this is the last public plea of Jesus where he says, Please, when you see me, you see my Father. We are one. I am the representation of the Father. I'm the disclosure of who God is. God is the one that lavishes his love on you in such a way that God is dying for you. We are rescuing you. So he's pleading with the people to believe him and to believe the Father and to see the Father. So this is not a calm conversation. It's not a quiet teaching on a hillside. It's... um, It's his loud cry. It said he cried out to the people. And by this time, I really picture Jesus screaming, maybe with tears, just whatever it took, with such fervency, please, while you have me, believe in me. Believe in the one who sent me. And then when um, he's talking about judgment... We see finally the Father's passion for the Son. He who rejects me does not receive my sayings as one who judges him. The Father's passion for the Son's glory. Don't reject my Son. This will not be good for you. It may look from the outside world that people that are very unfamiliar with the Trinity, unfamiliar with who Christ is and what the cost of his suffering and death They may think that Jesus drew the short straw in the Trinity. Yeah, it's fine. God created the world, but Jesus had to do this agonizing death. Um, Anybody that would have that sort of reaction to the death of Christ uh, may or may not be a parent. Um, It is unbearable to watch your children suffer, and any parent will say, let it happen to me. Would rather the suffering happen to them. There's nothing worse than seeing a parent 
outlive their child. And in every occasion, you know as a, as a mom that you would much rather have the suffering come to you than to watch it happen to your child. So in this way, Jesus, God's heart of pure anguish and anger and zealous love for his, for his son to say, he is not and will not do this in vain. He will not suffer for naught. And you reject the suffering and death of my son. You have rejected me. Um, for your child to go through something and then it um, is more than we can imagine what God the Father experienced as his son was crucified and suffered the wrath that we deserve. So as we end the lesson today, um, let's just pray for strength to die more and more to ourselves and live a passionate life for Christ. Jesus himself, in his human nature, as it came out in that prayer, could not have borne the cross. He couldn't have done it in his human nature. He had to be upheld and strengthened in every step of the way through the power of the Holy Spirit to submit himself to the will of the Father. It was the faithful presence and sustaining power of the Holy Spirit that enabled him to suffer and die. And in order for us to die to ourselves and live to Christ, we have to have that same power. We cannot do it in and of ourselves. We can't lay our lives down for Christ. We're too afraid. We're too scared of what the loss. We're afraid of pain. We're afraid of suffering. And we can only do that through the power of the same Holy Spirit that sustained Jesus. May we live by and in that same power so that we will live and worship with complete abandonment as Mary did, willing to suffer ridicule, willing to suffer any great loss for the worship of, of our Christ so that the aroma of our lives and our church will fill the earth. If you'll flip back with me to the very first page, this passage in 2 Corinthians should be our, our prayer as we think about this passage. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death and the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity and commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. I'll pray. Father God, may our lives be a sweet aroma uh, of you. May we um, know it on an intimate way in our own personal lives as we submit ourselves to you will you give us the power of the holy spirit to con to continue to live more and more a life where we die to ourselves and to our pleasures and to our own protection and live more and more for you in utter abandonment i pray that um we will um lean in on the teachings of this this chapter and that we will um Rejoice and be refreshed and be strengthened by your death and resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen.